Another episode of the Science Night Podcast. Thank you for hanging in there and waiting for this episode to drop. So here's what happened. I was putting together a broader topic that was going to cover ancient medicine. And then I found out that's extremely broad. And I was like really into a bunch of different parts of it. So here's what we're going to do. Tonight's episode is a podcast version of a live event that I did back in May. It was a virtual science night uh, called Alone Together, and you can see the video for that on our website, SciNight.com. But this is a section specifically talking about miasma theory, sanitation theory, and medical masks. So, it was a hot-button issue back then, and it has gotten even hotter as time has moved forward. So you will be hearing that in a couple seconds, and then going forward, I think I'm going to create a series of special episodes that goes a little bit more in-depth on other topics of ancient medicine. And you're also going to have a guest appearance by Chris Goulet from the Windsor Live podcast. Uh, You'll hear him Uh, He was part of that event. Thank you so much for all the work that you did to put that together, Chris. And thank you for letting me use your voice to further my podcasting career. I think I've gone on long enough, so please enjoy this presentation about masks, miasma theory, and just generally the deadliest of stinks. talk about the creation of the medical mask who knew in a virtual presentation during a pandemic of a respiratory disease that we would talk about something as on the back burner as medical masks we have no practical experience in our current day with this at all nothing to relate it to no that's yeah. not true. so when I put this together, I was like, I'm just going to do a couple slides and talk about medical masks. One thing to point off at the start is that this is not an exhaustive history of medical masks, pers- personal protective equipment, or any other kind of masks. We will not be covering Halloween masks. We will not be covering any ritual masks. We will not be covering um, Majora's mask. But... The length of time that I will be speaking for the next little bit will make you think that this is very exhaustive. Exhausting, for sure. Um, Get ready but I couldn't this. really... <laughs> I couldn't really Bubble talk about... seat seatbelts. Yeah. We're going to get down on masks. <laughs> I couldn't really talk about the creation and kind of evolution of the medical mask without talking about why we didn't always have them and why there were some medical theories that kind of 
brought them about and kept them off the back burner for or off the front burner for a little bit. So let's talk about mia- miasma theory. Miasma theory. I say miasma. How do you say it, Chris Goulet? Uh, miasma. Now sure. this this is a Mazda product, mm-hmm. right? It's a convertible, yes. if I'm not mistaken. I believe it's the next step up from the protege. I see. I see. Um, so it is stating in basic terms that sometimes air is bad, which is true of all things. Broad, broad statement, but hard to argue with. Yeah. And sometimes breathing in that bad air will make you sick. So the big thing to remember is that air itself can sometimes be bad enough to make you sick. Not the things that it is carrying, but the air itself. And this is the most of this talk is going to be kind of centered in the Victorian era, the early 1800s. Okay. Um, but this is a, a very ancient hypothesis. Uh, the image on the screen right now is Hippocrates famously saving Athens uh, from the plague, which is all it's known by the plague, the uh, by setting some yeah, there's some uh, cleansing fires. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can read about this in Thucydides, and you should also remember that it did not happen. Hippocrates, the person was not at Athen, in Athens during the plague, which really did happen. And there is some interesting kind of scholarship on what the plague was. Uh, we still don't know. It was probably typhus, but there's not really any evidence to say one way or the other. Um, and you should also remember that the setting of the cleansing fires, which probably did happen because this was a mainstream theory at the time, did not save the Athenians from the plague. Things like herd immunity uh, did. So, just kind of setting up what miasma, miasma, what this theory is, uh, we can move a little bit more forward into, oops, hit the wrong button, into uh, the Victorian era, where cholera and typhus uh, were just kind of ravaging urban centers in Europe and also North America. Um, so the, the people during this time, they thought that all plagues were brought about by bad air. Uh, and the images on the screen are talking about war, um, kind of sweeping across the area and bringing the foul smell of death and gunpowder into camps and bringing on cholera epidemics, um, and typhus epidemics and dysentery, but it was more likely that the close quarters, questionable water sources, the fact that people are getting shot or stabbed uh, are all around were were more likely the cause um, of those things. Uh, sanitation was okay, also wait. big. I gotta, I gotta, yeah. I gotta stab you. I have another monkey question. So okay, what? So I'm trying to like wrap my head around what people were perceiving miasma to be and and it's described as as bad air right you say it's like mm-hmm. it's like the the so i'm i'm trying like what were they pointing to that was that was like oh man here comes miasma right like i can tell that this is miasmatic 
uh, and we have got to we've got to get do something about this. Be, you know, is it was it like, you know, I can I don't know. Was it just like the existence of something stinky? Because knowing what I know about relative, you know, hygiene and uh, and sewer systems, <laughs> you know, septic yeah. systems of the time, it feels like you know that might be a difficult attribution to make. Definitely. So what you have to remember is that when these big plagues are happening, both in the ancient world and in the Victorian era, they are happening in dense urban centers. Um, So with dense urban centers, you have the accumulation of wealth. Obviously you have affluence, but you have lots of effluence as well. So people are, relieving themselves garbage is kind of piling up and bad smells are kind of constant at this time so uh, is everything the, miasma <laughs> well you know to them it was foul smells specifically could be a uh, a precursor for disease but it could also have been um like a wet air that kind of suddenly comes in so like a humidity uh that comes in during specifically the spring or the fall uh which would also tend to bring on seasonal uh fevers uh that time but the thing to remember is that it is not necessarily the air itself that is doing it but uh the air could be bringing things in that are infecting people and since these are densely packed areas mm-hmm. so think about london during the victorian era or mm-hmm. a napoleonic military camp people are basically living on top of each other so uh while the foul air definitely didn't make people healthier um and we'll def- we will talk about that in a minute it did not necessarily bring in respiratory diseases like cholera right 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 that yeah just trying to wrap my head around how what it is that they they thought that they were experiencing yeah i mean no one likes to smell the the, uh you know yankee candle company has made they and a multi-million dollar business on things should smell nice um I don't know if they've linked that back to miasma theory, but we still have things like aromatherapy um, and essential oil diffusion and things like that. And that is a little bit linked to uh, miasma theory. Uh, So it is still partially, they might not realize that they are kind of linking themselves back to this ancient Hippocratic and Galenic medical theory, but they, they, they might be. Um. So the other big thing and the other picture on, it's on my right, I don't know if it's flipped or not in the stream, but you have uh, something pointing at sanitation, uh, which was not great, like I talked about. Sewage was just kind of dumped into a waterway, and the uh, water source may or may not be downstream from where the sewer was dumped into it. Uh, Garbage just kind of piled up and uh, was taken care of eventually. Um, most cemeteries were right in the middle of town. Urban centers got more and more dense as um, industrialization came to them. And industrialization tended to be in the urban centers rather than now you kind of see it away from a residential area. So not a lot of zoning boards uh, were 
were in play in the Victorian era. Uh, a big takeaway, the sanitation argument was also a way for the ruling elite to just exert some good old-fashioned classism. Um, you know, it was the wealthy areas that would be sanitized once that, um, that effort started to uh, come about. Um, but there were efforts for sanitation. And while they were completely wrong that putting sanitary uh, actions into areas would stop respiratory illnesses, mm -hmm. they definitely were wrong in the best way possible, right? Sure. That's, that's you know, <laughs> failing successfully, as it were, falling upward. So before we move too far forward, we have to look at kind of older versions of personal protective equipment. And on the left, you see the very evocative Renaissance Plague Doctor. And this was specifically in the Italian uh, capitals of the Renaissance during the bubonic plague. They would wear a waxed leather outfit, including hat, pants, uh, shoes, gloves, hat, that big overcoat. And the easiest to spot is that beak looking mask that the doctor's wearing because they and were that... trying to uh, inspire enough <laughs> nightmares to scare the shit out right. of you enough to get the disease out mm -hmm. goodness gracious <laughs> and that that beak was stuffed with potpourri basically like camphor and flowers and really strong smelling things so that as the miasma would work its way up to the nose of the doctor it would be sweetened with these smells and therefore, I guess, rendered less potent. Um, I do not know the statistics in bubonic plague doctors that contracted bubonic plague. I tend to think because of all of the other protective equipment they're wearing that it was probably pretty low. However, I do know the statistics kind of on their uh, effectiveness in combating the plague and they are extremely poor. Um, Get out they of town. Would, yeah, Put they were basically statisticians. Assume that you're <laughs> not going to catch the flu. Things are not going to go well for you. Yeah, they basically acted as statisticians. They would go in and count how many people had the plague mm -hmm. and then how many people died from said plague. And eventually, uh, you know, the, the plague would kind of die out in the area and they would be like, oh, it's gone now. You're welcome. And they would get large sums of money directly from the city in which they were working for their their efforts. So really interesting. And, you know, anyone who's played Assassin's Creed 2 has spent lots of time talking with Blade Doctors. The other one is a, a lot less effective than this outfit. I mean, they were not actually doing anything by stuffing camphor into the beak of that mask, but they were protecting themselves by having a waxed leather cocoon that they were covering themselves in. Oh, I don't know. Uh, the they were inspiring an entire generation <laughs> of obedient children, I'd say. Yeah. And also, like, the steampunk outfits that are Plague Doctor-centric are just amazing. So take take a few minutes after this and Google Google that, and you will not be disappointed. Um, the Victoria Veil hat, while it was probably less terrifying, uh, was not very effective at doing much. 
the thought was that it would stop dirt from hitting the person's hair and skin, but you could also perfume it so that it would stop foul air from getting to the lungs. And I'm sure that if you ran a statistical report on how many people wore veil hats and didn't get cholera and not link it to the fact that they were living in uh, wealthier, more spread out areas, uh, you would not find that they were very effective at all. But darn, were they fashionable? They were. You know, I, I would be personally for either of these looks coming back um, I've definitely got a bias toward one and not the other (laughs) so also there came about like large efforts to make sanitary changes to urban centers and you can see versions of this here this is the time and we're talking about the 1830s to 1850s where urban planning started to take off in earnest and you have these large boulevards that are getting constructed urban downtowns like in Paris and London are, are getting spread out as much as they can um, and you cannot kind of ignore in all of this that the poorer areas are just kind of getting gutted in favor of these parks Uh, But this is the area where Highgate Cemetery and the entire rural cemetery movement for urban areas uh, began. So you get these really awesome um, cemeteries that are in these wooded areas just outside of urban centers. Uh, If you are in Windsor, Vermont, you can go to the Escutney Cemetery and see a version of this rural cemetery kind of um, movement, even in rural Vermont. Uh, but Central Park in New York is is a, a really stark version of this, where you have this huge area of trees and water and grass that is just completely surrounded now by skyscrapers. Um, and you can imagine that there were probably other people living there at that time. Uh, that is also very wealthy area. <laughs> Wait a second. I got another monkey question. Okay. Are there can't believe I'm going to ask this. Are there dead people buried in Central Park? Is it a cemetery? Because I've never no. heard of I didn't think so. I mean, I mean, there could be dead people buried sure. in Central Park. Yeah. It I mean, is not part of a sanctioned... People in sure. Central Park. Yeah. It is not a sanctioned event. Okay. I didn't think so, but the monkeys back here wanted to know. Mm. So, these immediately had effects on public health bringing sanitary conditions and with this also came municipal sewer and um, street sweeping efforts specifically in New York you see uh, the sanitation commission wearing these like stark white pressed outfits to show how clean they're making the areas and this definitely had an effect on public health it just did not necessarily have an effect on the transmission of respiratory diseases which is what they thought they were doing um and in all of this there are some early sanitation heroes that we should talk about their efforts because they kind of led towards a better understanding of how these diseases are transmitted um so you have john snow that's the wrong john snow uh, he made the connection 
between contaminated water and cholera outbreaks. So while he didn't actually look at the virus that was was doing this, he made that connection. That was in 1854. Uh, Obviously, Florence Nightingale is famous for bringing sanitary measures to battlefield hospitals, and that includes things like dressing overcrowding and ventilation, contaminated water sources. But the biggest thing that she did is brought statistics into tracking the effectiveness of these sanitary measures. Uh, So over a five-year period, she was able to track um, the uh, five-fold decrease in mortality rates in these hospitals because of sanitary efforts that were brought to them. And extremely on everyone's mind right now is Ignaz Semmelweis, which he has... I can't, I can't get interesting, it out of my head. Yeah, he's got an interesting forehead, for sure. And a great name. And a pretty good mustache. But... He is the person that brought hand washing to the medical profession. Um, what a guy. Right. So he made the link between poor sanitation in hospitals and the high mortality rate in women who gave birth in them, because this is at the time when women are just starting to give birth in hospitals rather than at home. Uh, and this is in 1851. And those deaths were due to something called pur- purpural fever. Um, so he started these hand-washing protocols and he was using, um, chlorine, chlorine washes and things like that, um, before going into like a delivery room. And he also brought just basic sanitary procedures to hospitals. Uh, and even though he was able to show a decrease in these instances of fever, his ideas were just thrown out as ridiculous and never caught on. And now there is something called the Semmelweis reflex, which is the rejection of new knowledge because it contradicts a more entrenched belief. Uh, so eventually handwashing did catch on. And I encourage all of you to wash your hands very often for at least 20 seconds. Uh, the Semmelweis way. You do not need to use chlorine in that washing soap and water is fine. Uh, But these are the people that kind of kept sanitary measures going, but this was still definitely within the miasma theory. Uh, We still thought bad air was doing this. So the sanitary efforts were to get rid of bad air rather than fight anything specific. So did Semmelweis think that the miasma was attaching itself to your hands or like where was that that you know air to physicality translation so there's a lot in that question part of it has to do with miasma theory part of it has to do with a good doctor was seen as someone who had a lot of gore on or about his person at that time. So they would go in from a bloody operation or a autopsy into a delivery room and hand washing was not something that they really worried about. Mm -hmm. So he thought that, you know, I think this is not a great look uh, and I'm sure they stank as well. Um, But they're like, let's, let's take a clean approach and see how that goes. And obviously every dude in 1850 is like, no, you want me to wash my hands? That is ridiculous. How dare you? 
Um, and then I'm sure they ate a huge amount of red meat after that. Yeah, giant uh, red meat, and then milk the cow, and then <laughs> uh, did did some uh, minor weekend plumbing project, and then go deliver a baby. What's correct? Wrong with that? Exactly in that order. Uh, so that brings us to the people who are responsible with the germ theory of disease. And this is the thought that something that we cannot see is causing the disease. First, we have Louis Pasteur of pasteurization fame. And between 1860 and 1854, he did experiments that linked microbes to disease. And that includes bloodborne illness. He is most well known for pasteurization. And we all have safe milk because of that. You also have Robert Koch of postulate fame. And in 1876, he was able to link uh, bacteria to anthrax infections. Uh, that is Bacillus anthracis. Tuberculosis to Mycobacterium tuberculosis. And before today, I did not realize that people thought tuberculosis was a hereditary disease. Um Oof which is crazy <laughs> to me, um, but they did. And he also linked cholera to Vibrio cholerae, and I expect you to remember all of those for the quiz at the end of this. Oh, did you not know there was a, qui a quiz, folks? Oh, yes. Yeah. And I was, I was, you know, going back and forth when I was writing the copy here to just kind of go through them and say that he linked them to bacteria, and I was like... Maybe I'll just write these down in case Chris asked me, but the act of me writing down and trying to remember the pronunciation for this Latin was like, I don't care. I'm just saying it because I put this work into it and I want people to know <laughs> that I put the work into it. So there you go. Um, and of course, these were the first people to theorize that an organism that we could not see specifically caused the disease, not the air. So it could travel through the air, but it caused the, the organism itself caused the disease. They were the first people to do it. Except for these people and probably loads of other people that were kind of thrown off of the uh, um, kind of annals of science. You know, we have people who like Fracastoro and Von Plensix who their ideas were just not quite mainstream enough. And then you have Avicenna who just was not Europe. Uh, he was not European enough. Um, to be considered a leading voice. Um, he was trying to throw this theory forward during the times of Galenic miasma, and he just did not have the voice. But Avicenna, we could do an entire podcast about him, and maybe we will. But a lot of people have, so we won't. So now we can talk about the thing that we're actually here to talk about, masks. We know what is causing these diseases and we can look for ways to stop them. And we should definitely talk about Wulinte, who we should be hearing about him all the time right now in our current uh, uh, situation, but we haven't. Uh, he is largely credited with modernizing Chinese, res uh, Chinese medicine during the Republic of China era. Um, and he was able to prove that pneumonic plague was a respiratory disease uh, during a 1910 through 1911 outbreak. So previously, everyone thought that it was transmitted in the same manner as the bubonic plague, which was uh, um, through a flea bite. Uh, so bloodborne in that instance. Hmm. 
Uh, but he was able to prove that there was yet another plague, a pneumonic plague that was transmitted via respiration. Um, and that is when he developed this mask. So surgeons were ma- wearing masks before this. Uh, his um, innovation was adding some filtering material to it to actually filter out something as small as a virus. So the fact that we have great things like surgical masks and N95 respirators, and we can link that all back to this gentleman. And it is like incredibly hard to overstate how important he is to Western medicine, even though we, and likely all of you watching, is there's anyone still watching, um, you probably never heard of him. Uh, so he was the first Chinese doctor nominated for the Nobel Prize in 1935. Wow. He did not win. Um, when he died in 1960, the London Times printed, By his death, the world of medicine has lost a heroic and almost legendary figure, and the world at large, one of whom it is far more indebted to than it knows. And the work on viral outbreaks is still incredibly relevant and has been used during the SARS outbreak, the MERS outbreak, and is currently being used by the WHO and the CDC for combating the COVID-19 outbreak. So I wanted to take a lot of time talking about this because I had never heard about him before two days ago when I put this PowerPoint yeah, I presentation. I never heard his name before. Yeah, I mean, if you are a Chinese medical student, you have definitely heard about him. And the people who are at the front lines combating the COVID-19 outbreak mm-hmm. are students and faculty and researchers at the Wulinta, um medical institute in china uh so it's another version of we know a lot about western medical history sure not so much about eastern medical history and again just to make sure i understand the the major contribution was the was it the the observation or the research or like the, the the what part did he contribute to in saying like oh hey microbes and viruses get through fabric unless we have fabric that can hold it back enough like what's right that part exactly so his his major contribution was noting that there had to be something small enough to fig to filter out something as small as a virus uh so there were surgeons wearing cloth masks at this time but you can kind of see in this image, it's the best one I could find of him specifically wearing a mask. You can kind of see there is a denser fabric at the front of this. Right. And right. this is some uh, filtration media um, that is at the front of the mask. But he is an amazing person. So um, he did so much work in just outbreak research that he deserves. For a comparison. Shout out here. If you were to ask random Joe Schmo in, you said 1935 is when he was nominated for a Nobel Mm -hmm. Prize? Okay. So if you were to ask random Joe Schmo on the street uh, those days, hey, what's miasma? Would they, what would, where, where was that on the sort of cultural awareness radar? Had it died by then or what was? Yeah. That was pretty far. I mean, so we were, by 1935, we were past the thing I'm going to talk about next, which is 
the uh, Spanish influenza outbreak, and you can see that masks were just omnipresent at that point. Sure. Um, most locations you would be fined if you were not wearing a mask. So by that point, it was completely uh, germ theory. Uh, people would be talking about the virus rather than the foul air. Um, and this is also, 1935 would have been after sanitary efforts were right, put in place right, in right, cities right. too. So when did Miasma so, die? Uh, around 1870 is when we see the death throes of Miasma. And that was because... People like uh, Coke and Pasteur were able to actually visualize and um, isolate these viruses. And I just kind of glossed over it, but Coke's postulates are um, criteria necessary to link a microbe to disease. So it's also something that you can kind of throw into the scientific method and use something that's repeatable to prove that this thing is causing the disease. Uh, so that's why Dr. Koch gets this elevated status in epidemiology. I see, I see. Still not that long ago in the grand scheme of things. No, huh? No, it's not. <laughs> um, and, you know, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but the 1800s are where you see a lot of these old ideas start to fall off. And when I mean old, I mean ideas dating back to Aristotle, Galen, and Hippocrates. Um, it's really easy to think like, oh, people in the Dark Ages, they just had this misunderstanding and the Renaissance is when all this changed. But so a lot of uh, things that kind of went through medical history, especially, but also biology and naturalism, you know, they, they were refined in the Renaissance, but it was still a refinement of that ancient knowledge. That is the end of this portion of the presentation, but I really want to stop on this image to show just how many people in this are wearing masks and to talk a second about the Spanish flu. Uh, so this was an outbreak of swine flu, the H1N1 virus in 1918, and 500 million people were infected worldwide. And that includes 25 to 39 million deaths. Uh, just to stop you, that's a giant number that I, yeah. my brain can't actually process in this sentence, but how do they know it was H1N1? Do they have specimens from yes. back then? Okay. So they've isolated it. Yeah, they were able to isolate the, the virus, uh, and they were able to isolate that at the time. That's not uh, modern uh, modern science um, kind of reporting. Oh, okay, okay. Not like they... Okay, understood. Yeah, so... I will ask you a question, and maybe you know the answer to this, and I wouldn't be shocked if you didn't know. You're, you're a, an intelligent guy. Ah, but it's called the Spanish flu, so where did the Spanish flu originate? Hmm. I feel like I'm let, being led down a path. <laughs> you are free to answer. If you know the answer, tell me. That is that is awesome. I'm going to guess China? Mm-hmm. That is one of the thoughts. Uh, the, the leading thought is Kansas. Um... Makes sense. So, yeah, so so keep that in mind. But there's also uh, information possibly linking it to England and Austria. Uh, the location that is on no one's list is Spain. Um, there is an incredibly small likelihood that the virus came from Spain because the earliest reportings of outbreaks of Spanish flu 
came from the area bordering France. And this was a time when France was just rampant with cases of uh, H1N1 um, Spanish influenza. The thing is that Spain was just not censoring the news that was going out to the world. Uh, so they were the first one to kind of globally report what they were seeing. So that is why they get the moniker of the Spanish flu. Also, and they symptoms were... included a slight lisp and very long lunches. Yes. Yes, and uh, that's a they joke. were not that's super. Not, that's not science. No, no, you know that's true. Uh, well, a list in one part of it, but they would argue uh, that they do not have a list. That's how the C should be pronounced. Respect. Hey, and who am I to argue? <laughs> Speaking English, I don't think I have any uh, linguistic uh, uh, morals to stand on. Just in case you're watching this on something really small, there is a photo here. I'm thinking my cursor is coming through of a cat. The cat is wearing a mask. It is not just white fur around its mouth. Because we don't want it to jump to even bigger cats, as we've exactly. uh, reported on in uh, other podcasts. That we made. Like a tiger. Yeah. yeah. Like a tiger. That would be awful. Thanks for listening to the Science Night Podcast. In one week's time, I will return with the interview episode with Dr. Ellie McNutt. This was something I recorded a long time ago, and I wanted to put it in at the right time, and that just kept getting pushed back and back and back. It is, it is one of my favorite interviews that I have done in this, this little season, so I, I hope you're all excited, waiting on bated breath for this episode to drop. It will be here in one week's time next Friday. Uh, October 3rd, I believe it is, if you're listening far into the future. Um, as always, thank you to the River Power Podcast Mill. Uh, not a lot to report right now, but as always, things are simmering right below the surface. So check out the backlog of shows from Pulp from Beyond the Bail, uh, Too Many Hats, the Windsor Live Podcast, and whatever else happens to be on that channel as you are listening at this point. That is all for me. You can find our website, SciNight.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at ScienceNight1. And you can follow me, at James underscore Read 3. I will see you all in a week, and have a great day.